But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. You're listening to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined this week by Mike Felix, who is a researcher at the Jenna Institute for Democracy and Civil Society, and is also the author of Digitala Fascismus. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, just to begin with, uh, what's your area of research? Well, my my area of research is generally like far-right extremism. I'm working on it for, for many years. I'm doing my PhD at the University of Frankfurt on the rise of the Golden Dawn in Greece, actually. So um, I was working many years in Greece, did a lot of field work and research the archives of Golden Dawn. And I'm asking like how this neo-Nazi organization got so much traction during like the last decade. But yeah, here in Germany, I was much more working on, on how social media and the digital are changing the far right, especially in Germany, but also beyond. And on the other hand, also like how far right activism in a way uh, changes the way how we use digital media and how it in a way like influences public discourse and also like how we we engage social media in general to to hold this rightward shift and and which kind of position it takes in in, in the whole larger yeah together with my colleague Holger Marx I was writing a book on this and it appeared only in German unfortunately in October last year it's called Digitaler Fascismus Digital Fascism we also had the paper in English that has been published at the working paper series at the Center for Right-Wing Studies at the University of Berkeley. And this was the beginning that we tried to put like a theory of fascism, like to combine it with insights like from, from digitalization, from the way like how we can rethink fascism in the digital age. And this is our first yeah try, at our first attempt to try to write a popular academic book that yeah, that turns to the digital fas- uh, to the to the various facets that these phenomena bring about. So, what's the difference between the new digital fascism and the and the classic fascism? It's not that we say that there is the one fashion that and that the new fascism. It's what what we try to do with our theoretical work that we are doing there is to think like how media, how the transformation of media in a way also transforms fascism. And the most obvious point that we see is that there's a new structure that uh, what we propose how to rethink fascism in a way that not as a strictly hierarchical phenomenon that is structured by a party that is that has its leader and is is dominating through uh, paramilitary uh, appearances in the streets but what we propose is to to think of of the core of fascism the the interplay of of decay and and rebirth that is more or less the fascist core that is that all historians and yeah pundits are, are agreeing on to see how this transforms in in a time when media landscape is much more participatory when there are more and more actors engaging in kind of fascist spiral to 
in a way, like to put forward uh, a narrative of a kind of great replacement, a kind of white genocide. I mean, all these classic uh, narratives that we know from, from far-right actors that have been like nurtured for many years and decades are now very much free-floating, are adopted by people who would not consider themselves as fascists or as right-wing or as, in a way, nationalists at all. But um, there are different incentives how these people make these claims heard. And this is much uh, conditioned by the way how social media are working. So what we are trying to do, in, to put a chart, is to, to bring the strategies of the far right uh, in the digital context in relation the structures of, of social media and uh, to see like how it happened that there is such a, a right-wing surge recently that so many people who feel not so much appealed by far-right parties and movements still contribute to this kind of um, special dynamic that we call digital fascism. Golden Dawn might be considered a classic or a, a case of uh, a traditional form of uh, party-based fascism in your, I guess, if you're able to conduct a comparative analysis of Golden Dawn and these newer expressions of fascist sentiment, was Golden Dawn able to adapt and did it adopt digital forms of fascism? Is it a successful or a, a failed case of that kind of transition? It's a good question because I, it was actually not my main topic of my dissertation, but I when when I scrolled down like all the archives of Golden Dawn, you know, it's an organization that existed for 40 years. And when there has been like the first blog or the first website uh, that they set up like in, in the late 90s, it was interesting how they counted every week how many visitors they had. You know, they were like really proud in their, in their newspaper writing like, oh, um, this week we had 10,000 visitors on our website. This shows like in how far the people get the truth out or how we get the truth out to the people and that there is that we have finally found a medium that how we can communicate directly like to broader masses in a way without any kind of intermediaries and this this continued of course and golden dawn was very quick also to to adapt to social media like in 2011 2012 it was not so usual that you had political parties on on facebook for example and it, it was quite effective means in a way to also present and present themselves as uh, not as politicians, but the nice guys from next door. They were always showing like at the beach, at parties. And it was, so of course, the media was taking up these, uh, these shots and was making stories around it. So it was a very effective tool in a way uh, to, to get mainstreamed uh, for Golden Dawn until I think it was in 2000 after the murder of Pablo Suizas, they have been banned as one of the first political parties that was also represented in the parliament from, from social media. Uh, they, are still, they still have accounts on, on YouTube and Twitter, but they were largely banned uh, from Facebook, which was back then the only mass social medium uh, in Greece. But what I find interesting also like in, in that's why we we not want to say that this part of fascism is, is not in a way like relevant <laughs> anymore. But what what I what we found interesting is very much that we see in other contexts that um, much of the fascist dynamic that we see evolving in the digital is not so much guided by specific groups, movements, or parties, but it has taken a life of its own in a way. There are, that we find a lot of 
alternative media, a lot of influences that, that give far-right politics a very personal, very kind of authentic drive, and that, that pull it a bit apart from the more organized phenomenon. So they are still contributing, like in Germany, the, the party, the AFD, is the party of the most Facebook followers in Germany, for example. They have the most outreach, they have the, 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 the widest reach, but they wouldn't be as successful if they wouldn't have like their, their online army of different kind of self-made activists. People especially who didn't have a political biography, who felt especially after 2015, the hate and influx of migrants uh, in Europe, they feel felt appealed to get their voice heard. And, and this is something that in, in kind of this participatory uh, media landscape that, that is very much desired, of course, by, by platform operators, also by, by a democratic, democratic society that very much um, transforms or like, that very much shifts its, its main terrain of, of discourse to the digital. And of course, there are people who feel now appealed um, to have first time a mass audience to, to, to talk to, yeah, to so many people at the same time to also get feedback directly, instantly through likes and shares. And they feel appealed to work on a mission of, of national salvation. And, and this was in Germany a very crucial facet of, of the, the recent turn or swing to the right that we see, of course, represented by, by the rise of parties like the AFD, but that we see also in, in the rise of acts against, against refugees and, and their facilities. So we had in 2015 and 16, like every day, three attacks on, on a migrant facility or refugee facility. And this was, when we look at the profiles at the, of the perpetrators, these were not exactly the organized far-right people that we know from, from long time ago, that there are a lot of people monitoring them. There are watchdog and anti-fascist groups who, who very much have them on their radar. But those were people like fixed jobs, families uh, who have never appeared to file a demonstration, but who took the law in their own hand in a way, feeling threatened by a lot of coverage that they received through social media. And uh, also, like what, what we find interesting in this is it's, it's a generation, it's an older generation, the 40s, 50s, that feel engaged and appealed by social media reporting and that they yeah, their own way in responding to what they feel as a threat. And behind this is, of course, a very long media strategy of far-right activists who, who, who use social media to, to spread the rumors that the, that the migrants and refugees, there's coming crime and the death of the nation. So the Volkstod, the death of the nation, is something that, that we know for many years in, in far-right discourse, but this has gone, gone mainstream very much. And they wouldn't have reached out to so many people without having a very smart use of social media. I suppose that that notion of the nation permanently being under attack that you see in this far-right discourse is also, I guess, a permanent feature of a lot of mainstream reportage and commentary. I was wondering, to what extent do you think is the proliferation of digital fascism dependent upon a nurturing environment that's afforded by traditional media? Yeah, very good question. Of course, this is this is a very big and important part of it. So the way how social uh, how the the mainstream media in a way reports on on what's happening, of course, outside the framing of 
even fatal events that we also had here in Germany. This was, of course, um, encouraging what, what's happening on, on, on the fringes, on the far-right fringes especially. And, and what we observed here during the last years is that the media was especially not competent to, to understand how, how some digital dynamics are working and how easily they are being manipulated by a small minority that is very loud, very active, and that, that in a way dictates sometimes, not always, but uh, sometimes the public discourse by, media, by, by mainstream media taking up their claims and the issues. I can make an example. It was when, when Pegida was rising up in 2014 and 15, there was often the, the talk about the concerned citizen, the besorgte Bürger in Germany. So the, the constellation of Pegida was not that we had a lot of young people, it was in, in the majority elderly people joined this protest and they haven't been taken serious as a kind of what they have been, like a far-right movement and a far-right movement in times of general changing of society when it's getting much more diverse. So, so the media was hardly portraying it in the, in, in the beginning as, as people who have relevant concerns and the politicians need to respond to it. And, and this contributes, of course, that these people feel very much that they're on the right path, that they are going to put even more resources into their political activism. And of course, it is, we, we have in Germany quite fragmented media landscape, and we, we have different notions also what, what this means in a way, like for broader political discourse. But recently, we've seen also that the, the reach of these far alternative media really outnumbers in a way the reach of, of mainstream media and so we have we have influences and alternative media who get much more views and clicks than by 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 the regular print and and digital media that that more or less have been the gatekeepers for many years and this comes of course because the clickbait of of the far right is much more engaging the interactions profiting um, especially like those those media or, or the, those news streams that yeah that nurture fear and this is very much the business of the far right and of course the media plays an important role in it but at the same time they are also like yeah this this change of of the media landscape they try even to to get the same clickbait of course the the same revenues of clickbait that that far, the far right has and yeah, this is dangerous and it's always, always part of the story, sure. One question that occurs to me, thinking back to the origins, I suppose, of the internet and the World Wide Web and thinking about what's termed social media is when I think of, well, very often social media is, well, employed as a kind of euphemism for the control of a very small number of corporations that dominate the social media landscape, in particular Facebook and Twitter and, and so on. What can you say about how the internet as a whole has transformed over the past few decades to result in a very small number of sites dominating online discourse? Yeah, very good question. I mean, this is something that we, we have very central in our book also discussed, like this kind of yeah, it's, it's in a way a kind of colonialism <laughs> that these uh, very few Silicon Valley companies put out in, and 
in a way, like um, set the rules for for democratic discourse uh, worldwide. And as you said, like there's we see a very strong like centralization through platforms that always try to take the image of intermediaries um, that feel not liable or responsible for for the content that is being distributed via the platforms. But of course, I mean, this is one of the the greatest myths that they are spreading quite successfully, that they are neutral terrains where where everyone can meet and exchange and they are curating news they they are programming algorithms they decide in a way like who is on the platforms and who can who can in a way like communicate with whom and so this is critical infrastructure for for societies and this is in the hand of very few global players and, and this has of course uh, remedies for for the democratic discourse and in a way like how also societies are yeah dealing with political problems and i mean there, there are really a lot of points that i could uh, turn out now maybe i what i find especially interesting in, in terms of also far-right media activism is the way of how you can yeah of of the kind of industry that has been built through social media that earns money like with spreading far-right myths and conspiracies. Uh, I mean, this kind of monetization that we see through social media, especially, that makes it possible to, to, to make a living and through just sharing falsehood, slurs and harassment um, campaigns. And this is something that... that didn't exist before. There they didn't. There haven't been like so many incentives to to use these platforms uh, to make it uh, to make a living out of it and to to use it for for political activism. Of course, it goes in many sides. But what we see, especially recently, is that that we, we have such a kind of industry um, that is in a way filling social media so much that it's almost impossible to not get across far-right uh, content um, through social media. And yeah, this is something that also changes very much the structure of the far-right. So we have like now people, influencers who really act on themselves, who, have, who guide a kind of um, followership as if they would be like pop stars. And they, they have a kind of they have merchandise, they have their fans. It, it needs like very few clicks uh, to put uh, or to to pull people like out on the streets and it's, it's such a kind of um, close relationship between single actors and the broader masses i mean this is uh, the dream of every demagogue of course and what what we discuss especially in the book is and how far like all these liber that have been termed as liberties to express ourselves uh, as kind of ways how we can engage more freely also against authorities and against domination. And how this was always in a way like based on a quite unstable or critical way of how we how we engage digitally because it, as you said it's all in, in the hands of the designers of social media in a way how we interact and and this is very much exploitable because for for social media operators it doesn't it doesn't play such a role who's using their their services in a way we see also very much how it moved like from from the network idea to a more like an an, an ad industry um the social media and and we see like how this creates new kind of social figures that have been 
very much um, identified as, as liberating, but they turn very quickly into regressive phenomena that that play certain role to to undermine these liberal freedoms that are that we find used to have now. I mean, the, the idea that everyone can spread every kind of information to a potentially global audience is something that that is a great thing in, in general. This, but it also has like it brings about so many problems and dilemmata and dilemmas to in a way like curtail the the negative consequences that that these liberties bring with it and this is yeah this is something that maybe we can discuss now also but what we think is in the structure of social media there is nothing constructed that that would prevent uh, such developments and and that the far had a very good very good idea how to exploit these spots of yeah of interaction that that would give them the chance to to directly communicate to a mass audience this is what i mean this is the idea how fascists always used media unregulated media to have the the possibility to to communicate directly to masses without traditional media without parties without any kind of intermediaries in between them but the the people is being addressed through the leader and gets yeah you know in a way like manipulated uh, for the causes of fascists today it is not so much top down it's much more bottom up and this is what we try to to describe um as digital fascists there is one sort of intermediary that they need to go through to spread these messages of hate, which is the platforms themselves, given their record, how much confidence can we have in the in big tech firms policing hate speech? Yes, I mean, of course, these are the intermediaries um, who have been largely passive throughout the last years, but uh, lately, like of course, the deplatforming of Trump, this this has changed. And I mean, if we are looking back some more years, it was there hasn't been. A kind of strategy how to cope with this kind of content. It was also like in public discourse. It was very much a kind of flip side in a way of uh, of social media. It was it was part of the whole to have hate speech on on the platform. And we had a lot of initiatives who said like, okay, we just need better arguments. You just need better better counter speech campaigns to stop this kind of uh, dynamic that is ongoing on, on, on platforms. But I think what, what the last years proved is that it is not not about the better argument. I mean, of course, it never had been also in the history of fascism. It hadn't been um, because these, the people, they think they have a kind of ultimate version of the truth that they are following and everything that speaks against them is is false. And um, and this is of course amplified through the way how social media has been working and still works in a way that that we that in a way like these these postings are very much are getting much more traction that that cause interaction and and that that is always of course an advantage for for far right and politics but it is difficult to to find like. A coherent way to to stop this whole mess uh, in in platform dynamics. So I said like, okay, we have kind of counter speech initiatives that are that make very good work, but at the same time, I mean, if we see it as a whole, they have also been 
or like some some campaigns or some actions have been also very counterproductive in a way that they um, enhanced the interaction rates of far-right postings uh, online in a way that they always um, reacted and through reacting they they reproduced in a way also the message because um, these messages got more interactions more traction have been advanced algorithmically and so it, it needs a lot of good understanding of, of strategic communication to counter those those far-right hate speech and dangerous speech acts online and of course social media companies have been supporting initiatives but it was of course more for pr reasons than that they took really the more deeper foundation of, of this kind of, of dynamics so if they would be they would take it serious of course they would rethink their their, their ad system the way like how if they really want people to be engaged all the time on their platforms and, and if they don't change the business system they their self-regulatory measures are always just scratching on the surface so it's it's not just the algorithms it's not just the way how they also like ask for such content but it is in a way and um, the whole the social i mean the different social media platforms as a whole who are very much um open to be exploited and so i i wouldn't trust social media companies too much to also get really the problems. I mean, often we talk about the symptoms of the problems, but but to go back to, to the idea that everyone can, the principle of publish then filter, so that everyone can publish first and then have to filter, um, this demands so much automation on the one hand, on the other hand, so much death and personal uh, work that is in a way like, yeah, ordering like um, the the trash of, of Silicon Valley and and this this is uh, in these dimensions that we have like with billions of users that we can never expect a kind of system that really works in a way. So so I I think or and I did a study on on, on the deplatforming in Germany of the far right. It is interesting to see like how this this is ongoing for many years. In Germany we have much stricter laws and we have much more regulation than other countries so they they have been more prone to to react but as like um, far-right narratives are not so much bound anymore to specific actors and are more much more like taking the form of a swarm that is like spreading like very difficult to detect and it is quite difficult to to contain the the spread of these narratives and ideologies and there's few concepts behind how this could be done it's and just to just to add also like it, it's not about just uh, the hate speech it's not just about those um, speech acts that are targeting minorities that are obviously yeah against uh, the community standards of the platforms it's much more the subtle um, communication acts that are often ingrained in in, in visual uh, propaganda, in, in videos and audio voice messaging, that is very difficult to detect. That is very difficult also, yeah, to 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 counter. And it is not very much also speaking against the community standards. It's it's enough to to set a link and to a smiley or an emoji uh, to. To say the message and and 
social media has polarized society so much for for so many years and it's we are now at the point where the, the time of persuasion is in a way like is, is done in, in, in certain way we have we see it in the us it's it is not that a lot of people need much more much more information to 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 take sides it is very much um, progressed that there are people who believe in one or who think that, that there are different forms of the truth uh, out there and hanging to the one and see an antagonistic version of the truth on the other. And, and this is, I think we are still at the beginning to understand in how far social media contributed to these cemented um, antagonistic versions of, of understanding social reality and, and in how far this also moves back uh, in, or like what, what this means like for progressive or radical politics to to show alternatives um, to this. And yeah, I, I will leave it to this first. Well, Mike, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll have a few more questions with you on the podcast version of this show at 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran or wherever you get your podcasts. And people can also find you online on Twitter at Mike underscore Felix. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Mike, in your essay, you make reference to various techniques that the far right and the extreme right deploy in their online propaganda. One of them is uh, gaslighting. Can you briefly explain what that is and how that functions in order to bolster digital fascism? So gaslighting is actually like a term that we know very much from psychology or like from psychology of yeah of, of relationships between especially like uh, in, in the old days men and women that refers to the question how to make people like emotionally dependent on yourself and, and probably you know the the movie gaslight uh, from the 40s i think and we we have like the main actor who always tries to to make his wife uh, in a way like to, to uncertain about how she perceives perceives reality so he's, he's using various techniques for example like uh, to to open a gas li a light a gas light and to say that it's there's normal light and the the wife is just seeing that it's uh, not so, so I don't know the word in English but it's not so constant light so but she was using various ways in a way to to show that she cannot be sure of how to perceive reality and and this is something that that we see in in a larger frame like how the far right tries uh, to influence and uh, to infiltrate the minds also of the people and in, in trying to um, present an alternative version of the truth of reality and to see uh, to to share in a way a version that out there there's a kind of civil war raging there's there's mass murdering there are migrants who try to rape your wife this is these are narratives that are singularly not so important but as a whole this is something that tries that that people lose their their trust in in public narratives or like in in the media or in the politics and are really left alone and need a kind of authoritarian way where they can rely on. And this is offered very much by, by far-right alternative media. So the idea why we also use it is, and, and I could quote Arendt now, it's, it's 
she always said like it's not so much for for totalitarian or fascist um, regimes it's not so much like um, the convinced people who who are like desired to to follow um, the movement it's much more those people who cannot distinguish between fact and fiction between true and false and, and this is what what we try to um, to argue like uh, how this kind of strategy to to pump up the volume very much like different dramatic uh, stories that leave the persons like threatened that leave them disorientated and that that demand a kind of alternative and, and this is being provided through a kind of collage um, that the foreign activists use to to write a different story about what's happening out there and and this is very much like facilitated by social media because today you have you have all the news available that wouldn't go beyond like the local level and you can collect from every different region for example in germany uh, you could have you can make maps and saying okay every day we see people being attacked by foreigners and so on and so on and and this is um very much Uh, playing into this, this gaslighting to say, okay, don't trust anything you hear out there, and don't don't trust even your own perception of of what you see and what you hear, because we have the truth, and this is that we are going um, to, and it's going down the nation, and and it's going down like you and your family, and and you need to trust a different version of uh, of truth and of politics and this is being offered of by by farad activists the core of fascism which you've deployed which has some scholarly consensus refers to a concept known as palingenetic ultranationalism can you briefly if you can explain that notion and how it informs your work especially in the digital realm Yes, uh, as you said, like we are very much, we are very inspired by by Roger Griffin, of course, and his work on on fascism and uh, the the idea of of palingenetic ultranationalism is very much ingrained back and now. That's at least our argument that we have a kind of obsessive occupation of fascist movement with national dissent in a way that we. That, that fascist movements are so much occupied in in, in spreading um, the version that they need. It's going down so much that it needs a radical change. And fascism is, in a way, em employing radical measures on society. And they, they need a kind of justification. So they need to have a kind of rationale that their action are the solution for, for a very urgent problem. And so this is very much what combines or what connects also, like in our sense, like the, the, the situations in, in the 20s and 30s, the situation today that, that there are political forces who, whose political capital is to, to draw the picture of a doom, a kind of apocalyptic vision of society that that urgently needs a kind of rebirth in a way that those all the structures of democratic liberal societies need to be really destroyed and society has to build up from scratch. And this is um, this, this ultimate vision of, of fascism 
that is of course uh, combined very different forms of um, organization of of aesthetics of also like of course of very different anti um, ideologies that we see like how how this fundamental idea is is not being today so much or not only um, expressed so much by by these classical actors but that it's really taking a world of its own and that it's that people are don't don't need so much kind of party anymore because they are today connected they are networked through social media they get these messages um, like on their PC uh, on a daily basis and this has been if we're looking back like what's the function of the party and fascism and this has been our function of course like to educate the masses uh, to have a constant constant connection like broad um, range of people and and we see of course that this has been much more top down back back then and that today if we look for example to brazil of course there's still a leader figure like like bolsonaro but but his stormtroopers in a way are not in a way, marching in the streets, uh, like of military um, discipline, but it's much more effective today to to employ like influencers who are like, yeah, making YouTube videos from the couch that that spread a kind of authentic idea of how to how to engage also this kind of content uh, content and. This is uh, what what we identify as much more effective, and that we see also as much more dangerous in a way. This kind of decentralized, um, bottom-up dynamics that that show that that authoritarianism is today also like coming from below and not just not just implanted by a party or a political actor, but that we we see very much like how this can take. Um, so different directions that also can lead um, people uh, like to take up the weapon and, and to shoot uh, in, um, I mean, this, this kind of far-right uh, terrorist wave that we've seen in recent years, this is very much uh, inspired also by, by these kind of palingenetic narratives, these kind of fantasies that are spread not only through social media, but also like through the different image boards and other different uh, digital parallel worlds uh, that that nurture this idea that you need to take the law in your hand and you need to self-defend yourself, your family, your nation. And, and this is what connects also like uh, the different violent expressions of, of fascism those days with, uh, with the movements, the street movements, but also like um, political parties and the online discourse that we see. And this is for us, the core now and then, how we um, try to think fascism in a way as, I mean, back then more, uh, or today we see it more as a social dynamic. And this is what our argument that we are trying to add to the, um, the discourse on, on fascism those days, that uh, we can try to understand fascism also detached from hierarchical actors and that we see it like um, that the the fundamental ideas of fascism of the interwar period is reinvigorated today differently than than we expected. So we also see like this some of the discussions um, is this fascism now is or is it still fascism? Is it not fascism? This is not so much our idea of using the term of digital fascism. It's more 
general social analysis on of of how of, of threats that liberal, liberal democracy face today and this is yeah for us in a way much more much more dangerous because you cannot fixate the problem to a certain actor that you can i don't know deplatform ban whatever but but this is so much detached and post organizational uh, in a way that uh, Jamalho was calling it that it is very difficult to pinpoint where these dynamics are are taking their origin how do they evolve and how can we intervene in these uh, dynamics this is very difficult on the political terrain to to internet to engage with this because back then we had like the clear votum of of this give them no platform but today it is not that um, anti-fascists or also democratic actors can just take the platform. Uh, this is in the hand of a few, yeah, of a few companies, as you also said, and this gives us, yeah, very different ideas how a digital anti-fascism anti-fascism also should look like. Uh, finally, uh, we have this. Uh Well, there have been various laws and regulations introduced by governments which seek to, in a sense, you know, regulate the expression of hate speech and so on and so forth. Also, we have uh, various non-governmental organisations which are attempting to engage in fact-checking to address fake news. But it seems to me that one of the issues which may be inherent to this kind of I guess, um, program is the kinds of counter-narratives that are being produced, which are meant to combat the, I guess, torrent of lies that we find online and especially on social media. They don't seem to have the same skill set or they don't seem to be able to produce the same kinds of effects. And it seems that one of the reasons for that is because there's a sense in which they're inauthentic or inorganic. They're not and they're not trying to present themselves as a, a voice of the people, or if they are, it's very much associated with some form of uh, governmental authority or other kind of repressive element that means that the audience which receives this message is less likely to respond positively or to absorb the kinds of messages that are being produced. Hmm. Um, my question is, uh, do you think that this means that there are opportunities actually for other social actors, not necessarily explicitly political ones, to intervene in the uh, meme wars in a way that tends to uh, combat the kinds of digital forms or the the digital fascism that you document in your work. Yes, yeah, a very important point. Thanks for pointing this out as well. I mean, we to, to take one step back as well, uh, so as as you said, like this is we had so many campaigns and so much money spent also like in, in online campaigning that has been largely missing its target. Uh, at least in Germany, I can tell you, dozens of um, also. I mean, they they were they had ideas and so on, but this like external intervening, um, this also like educational approach largely failed uh, in a way to because yeah it, it was not authentic it didn't get any traction and any reach and i think the largest problem of this campaign is 
that they cannot compete with the reach of, of far-right actors. And, and here we are at, at this dilemma that, that social media like also puts forward. And it, we, have, we are countering an actor that is not bound to any kind of ethical or standard. Or we, we have a radical pragmatic actor that, that uses any kind of means that would bring its political vision forward. And this means that we, we see, of course, in, in far-right context, a lot of man, metric manipulation in a way that, uh, that the usage of, of multiple accounts, of fake accounts, um, the way how online activism is, is coordinated that reached uh, a kind of di dimension that is really unprecedented, um, that, that there are people who are sitting at home and who are coordinated from one video to the next to vote it up or down and to comment and to, to silence also people, like not to, not to speak about the dogpiling and all these, all these harassment um, tactics that are being used uh, to, to, yeah, to silence or even to destroy the, your, your political opponent. And in this kind of atmosphere, it is very difficult uh, to to approach this kind of yeah kind of uh, discourse oriented way uh, that that would lead uh, to like in a way to consensus or at least that you agree to disagree in a, in a kind of civilized uh, discourse and and this is also due that uh, to to compete like with these far-right hyperactive acting online, you would need the kind of same manipulative ways uh, to, to counter it. We had, in Germany at least, we had very different um, initiatives who always tried to be present when there has been kind of some hate speech that has been concentrated, like, let's say, below uh, a news uh, link on, on one of the main um, media websites. So there, there would be kind of linked to, um, to an incident that is con that is connected to, to migration and there would be like 50, 100 hate comments down this and you would have like this initiative who would go there and try to, to compete in a way to say, okay, we have now, we, we cannot be, we have to represent like social majorities, we have to be there and we have to show that there is a kind of digital self-defense uh, of kind of uh, civil society that is present and that shows that, uh, that they are a minority. So there are people who are spending days and nights really trying to, to counter these arguments to say, okay, no, this is wrong, this is right, and maybe think twice. And this is, yeah, it, it, it is... At least the people that we spoke to, they are totally burned out after two or three years because it is it makes you so dumb to to engage with all this content on a daily basis that that you get, I mean that you withdraw. Like after short or long, you will withdraw like from from these kind of activities. And this also shows like that it is really difficult to also not have like the opposite effect that you want to have because normally if you we have a lot of um, political activists who who have a quite let's say rigorous approach and that in a way feeds into the hand of, of those propagators and demagogues who say that 
yeah, who say exactly that anti-fascists online uh, have nothing to offer you. And, and this is, there are so many dilemmas like involved here. Um, the same is about fact-checking, that every fact-check in a way can mean for those people who spread them that it's a kind of honoring in a way, that it's a kind of confirmation. Because if the system says your information is wrong, it should be right because the system is wrong. So this this kind of black and white uh, or this kind of interventions can also have like the reverse reactions and then this I wouldn't underestimate it. The same is like in in kind of Twitter's uh, shitstorms and so on. Um, this this can have really unprecedented ways how people feel even more attracted by by narratives that that counter in a way like um, anti-fascist or civil society approach. But yeah, I mean, you you said it quite before that, that this mm, this kind of unorganic and, and governmental approach to counter speech is is really just showing in a way like the helplessness, like how how difficult it is to to have a kind of civilized discourse on social media because yeah, a lot of people withdrew. Uh, there we we made a study at our institute that I think that uh, 20% or 30%, I don't know exactly, but there's a, a significant um, share of people who would not share their political opinion because they fear of being threatened, harassed, or even, yeah, just be, be silenced uh, online. So they prefer not to express. And what, what remains are the people, of course, um, who do not have any kind of yeah, any kind of restrictions of their own activism. And and we see, like, also this is very much uh, ingrained in our, like, metric understanding of, of relations in our society, that those people who get the most um, views, the most clicks, are supposed to be those people who are the most relevant in the political discourse. And, and this is something that goes far beyond our topic of today, but this is the datification of societies very much playing into the hands of those people who want to manipulate, of course, um, the metrics. And yeah, the far-right actors have such uh, an advantage in this because they feel not bound to any kind of, yeah, any kind of approach of, of, of true of, um, discourse of, in a way, like of any kind of deliberation. And, and so they, they use so much resources to, to manipulate their numbers uh, that, yeah, the, the idea to compare the reach is so disadvantaged um, for, for political actors who try to counter um, these ideas. And they, they, yeah, we, in our book, we speak, and, and this is, of course, this is, uh, up to debate, um, we we really demand a much more regulation of mass communication via social media. This it, it is still, if we think back to the twenties and thirties, it has been like it has been the gateway of of fascist um, movements to have like uh, to be early adopters of new media, to be uh, to communicate like so directly and to have their voices heard so much that um, that we had in Germany, at least, after uh, in the post-war period, it was one of the first measures to to put mass communication under democratic control. And this 
works quite well and we see also today like how how the public i mean of course we have the private media and we have um the the public um news sector but the public news sector is so much under attack today that uh it is such an important um facet to to have like this uh the access to a mass audience that that we need that at least from our perspective that we need to rethink like which kind of Uh, freedoms that we give to each of us need to be restrained to to save like for the many and to exclude the same freedoms for those people who want to want to destroy the freedoms and and this is a debate that we are just beginning to have and some of the regulations that we see are very much just scratching the surface to say okay we need to delete more we need to delete 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 it's it's uh, it is it's more complex i mean it is not just about deleting it's about yeah about who can communicate to masses in in which way and with and how do governments intervene without being censors this is uh, the major thing and for us it needs a kind of um, independent democratic council in a way to yeah to first of all um, set some rules for public discourse through social media and and not in a way how the facebook oversight board is doing it but in a much more comprehensive way and of course this clashes different national cultures um national laws and yeah it, it is a really complex debate but what we see is that these debates are more or less always um avoided and so we we keep this laissez faire um that that companies dictators and and this is very much into the thinking of uh, of these companies that they um further make the rules of how how the world is communicating and this is i think in 20 30 years when we are looking back it will will be we will question each other like how could this be like for so many years and uh like all these consequences that we have in in Brazil in the US in very different uh corners of the world also in Myanmar the genocide i mean we will ask ourselves okay how could we let them do this well mark we'll have to leave it there thanks so much for joining us On Tuesday, March the 16th at 6 p.m., the Indigenous-led charity Books and Boots will host a special screening of the film In My Blood It Runs at the Thornbury Picture House. All ticket sale proceeds will go to Books and Boots, who transport pre-loved children's books to First Nations kids in remote communities across Australia. For a fun night out and to help close the literacy gap, head to Eventbrite and search Closing the Gap fundraiser for Books and Boots or go to the website booksandboots.org.au to secure your tickets. Let's do it for the bull rise. Books and Boots is a 3CR supporter.